to mention the Risen Conference again. As Laura said, it's in three weeks, and it's always a great time of, of worship and fellowship. Uh, Jonathan, who comes to preach, is just one of my, my favorite preachers. He does a really great job. The times to be aware for that Friday night, uh, I know it can be tough if you're uh, older, but it's still fun to get out a little bit. It'll be from 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. And then Saturday, it'll be from uh, 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. And the intention of this conference has always been, like, if you can just come at any point, come and join us and be part, even for just, just a little bit, come and go. But one thing that I do want you to, to be especially aware of, the um, evening session on Saturday, which will be starting at 5, we'll have dinner together. And then at, at 6, uh, we're going to Jonathan will be speaking, but also uh, Robert Guy from the Reseda Church is going to come and help to lead um, a a team to come lead us in worship, similar to the unity worships that we've had. So uh, hopefully you can come at least be part of that evening. That'll be Saturday, uh, March 10th uh, from 5 to 8. But at any point, come and join us. And I feel the need to explain the title, Christians Make the Best Atheists. The reason uh, for that is, uh, and I told Jonathan I don't really like that title that much, but the reason that uh, he has that title, and it's uh, during the series that he did at his church, is because the earliest Christians were known as atheists because they didn't worship the gods and goddesses of that day. They didn't bow down to the same idols that uh, people had uh, forever. And so this idea came to Jonathan to talk about how we need to think about the different gods and goddesses that we can worship during our time if we're not careful. So it's going to be really fantastic and should be uh, a lot of fun. Also wanted to mention Alan Jang asked for us to announce the first weekend in March. There is an opportunity for you. It's $25, right, Alan? $25 for the entire weekend um, to go skiing up in Big Bear, and you get a chance to stay at at a cabin uh, nearby that area that is uh, heated and with warm showers, Camp Tonda, if you're unfamiliar with it. And a pancake breakfast is served each morning. So for $25, you get a place to stay. You can go um, skiing from there. So speak with Alan. Alan, raise your hand for a minute. You can speak with Alan to find out uh, more about that. But if you're someone who's into skiing, that's a, a great deal. I know personally, I don't really trust myself without my feet firmly on the ground, but uh, that's, that's, how, that's how I am. Uh, so we are, are doing a series called uh, um, Hope in Exile, looking at some themes from the book of Ezekiel. And I've talked about how this isn't really going in any particular order because Ezekiel is a bit of a strange book. As I told you, I was at the, a retreat with several ministers and we were talking about what everybody is preaching on right now. And I mentioned this and someone said, you're doing like several weeks in Ezekiel. Are you crazy? Because uh, it's a, a very strange book. There's a lot of odd things that happen in it. But one thing that I, I hope that you'll uh, remember from this series, thinking about a prophetic book, which really affects many of the prophetic books uh, in the second half of the Old Testament, is the exile. And remember the date that I gave you last week? Anybody? 586, 587, that, that time, there's some debate about which one is around that time. So as long as you're remembering 586 or 587, you, you pass the test. Either one of those um, works for me. But you have to understand, as we've talked about, this is absolutely crippling for these people because the exile happens. In fact, Ezekiel is part of the first exile uh, that begins just 10 years earlier. And then eventually in the book of Ezekiel, the temple is destroyed. And for the Jewish people, this is just totally crippling. This is where their religious activity would happen. This is where they would find God. And it would be hard for us if our church building was, was destroyed. Hopefully that doesn't happen in our lifetime. But if that happened to us, 
we would experience some difficulty with that. Some of us were married here, were baptized here, and we have some ties here, but still it has not even really a comparison, just a small glimpse of what it would be like for the temple to be destroyed. Because what do you do when it seems like God has forgotten you, when the place that God was isn't there anymore? That's the question that Ezekiel wrestles with, and a question that at times in your life, and this is why I think it's so important to talk through some of these themes, there's going to be times in your life when you say, hey, like God, where are you? I felt like I was doing the right things. I felt like I was being the person that you called me to be. And all of a sudden, like, I don't have my footing anymore. Where are you? Where you have more questions than answers. There's going to be seasons in all of our lives where we are going through a certain form of exile. And we ask those same kinds of questions, which I think actually makes it pretty fascinating how the book of Ezekiel starts. And I wanted to read this. It's a pretty long section. Just going to read Ezekiel chapter 1. But I wanted to do it straight out of a Bible because you maybe not even believe that this is in there. So, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. In my thirteenth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kebar River, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kebar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire what was, looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of the other. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading out upward, each wing touching that of the creature on either side, and each had two other wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Uh, Wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning of coals or fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be as a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out one toward another, and each had two wings covering the body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from 
above the vault over their head as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be from his waist like glowing metal as if full of fire, and that from down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. This, kids, might be why you don't do drugs, I think. It's a, it is a very strange reading, isn't it? And it describes like the wheels in the wheels, and there's an ox, and there's a man, and the, the creatures, and these wings. And you read that, and you might think, what is going on here? I love the line, the rims were high and awesome. And you didn't know... West Coast rappers quoted Ezekiel so much, right? And at the end of this image, Ezekiel just falls face down in worship. The question you might have if you were just coming along to this story and reading it and trying to understand what's happening here is, why did this survive? And this is around 2,500 years old, and you maybe want to know, okay, why was this one one that they said, you know what, we're going to keep this? There's some other things we want to throw out. It's not all that important, but this right here, we want to keep. Because if you were to write something, you'd be lucky if someone was reading it 25 years after your death. This is 2,500 years. And why? is something like this, which really does seem almost like the ramblings of a crazy person. If you were just like read through it, you would say, this is very odd. Why is this important? And then why is this in like the holy sacred scripture? You have a lot of questions. And maybe as you begin to, to understand what's going on here, there might be some answers. The text tells us that Ezekiel is a priest and the son of a priest. And again, in that time, their spirituality very much worked around geography and location. God was in the temple, which is good news because you would go to that place, you would do the sacrifices, you would do these things, but it's almost bad news for the rest of life because if God is there, then where is God at the other moments, at the other places? So for people who were very temple-centric, there are these things that you had to do. There are regulations. Many of the Old Testament scriptures are about you go at this time of year and you perform this kind of thing. You do this in this order. And not only was Ezekiel somebody who was like a re- religious in that system, he was the system. He was the priest. And when you went up to the temple every year, you didn't ask questions like, I wonder if things are going to be different this year. No, it's always the same. This is how you meet God. This is the way you're supposed to do it. This is the structure. This is how it's supposed to be done. There's order, symmetry, and repetition. The priest, to put it a bit in our terms, is, is a company man. And it reminds me of, uh, I just was thinking of this as uh, Perry served communion with, with his Dunder Mifflin shirt on, um, representing the office, which is a great show. 
And as you think about what it's like to show up at like a nine to five in an office every single day, imagine an accountant who, you know, you did your, a lot of years in accounting and your life is just built around numbers and spreadsheets and all this stuff. And imagine just showing up as an accountant one day and like your whole system of numbering is blown out of the water. The thing that you had come to know and and somewhat love because it organized your life, it's now gone. Two plus two doesn't equal four one Monday that you show up. That's just a hint of what this would be like. It'd be so disorienting. This is the priest, the son of a priest. He grew up in this. And how are you supposed to move forward? What are you supposed to do? Things are different now. And so he has this vision at the Kabar River, which is located in Babylon. In fact, there are some communal reflections on what this would have been like in the Psalms. Psalm 137 says this this way, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. They, there on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for our songs, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? And I believe there are going to be some moments in your life when you would ask the exact same question. How can I worship God in my current location? Whatever it is. I mean, not actually a physical geographic location, perhaps. But the way my heart is, what's happened between me, what happened in this relationship, the way I feel like God has let me down in this moment, how can I possibly worship? What am I supposed to do? How can this ever get any better. So this begins with this interesting thing about God showing up, and he comes in this way that is so profound and significant, which is a really unbelievable moment for Ezekiel, because he finds himself in exile in Babylon. And you have to know that in that place, the the goddess who was kind of in charge, one of the goddesses, uh, was named Ishtar. And Ishtar was a warrior goddess. She's the goddess of sexuality. So she would have been worshipped in all kinds of ways. And in fact, you can go to Berlin uh, to this day. There's a museum that has the famous Ishtar Gate. Here's a picture of it. It doesn't show necessarily well defined in this picture, but I wanted you to see how small the people are as they walk around that. This is from the remains um, in Babylon, and it's been reconstructed in Berlin. And to stand there is to walk through and realize, okay, this is Ishtar's house, right? And it's likely that the Jews who were brought in exile would have walked through or been dragged through this gate. It's a not very subtle way of saying, you're not in Kansas anymore, right? I know you all worship that God back there, but sorry, This is Ishtar's house. This is who we worship. And where is your God anymore? Anyway, and Ishtar was very unlike the God that Ezekiel would have known. A quote from the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is from Ishtar, says this, If I could only get to you and cut you open as the bull of heaven, I would throw his innards in your face. This is the kind of goddess this is. This isn't like, God is love and faithful. Hesed of God will remain from generation to generation. It's like, no, this is about brute force. This is a goddess of war. And it looks like Israel's God 
has lost. Because what do you do when you aren't in your home anymore? When how you worshipped is destroyed? And what do you do when the way that you structured your life is now completely thrown off? And that's why I believe perhaps this book has survived. Because 700 miles away, as the people find themselves in exile, God shows up in this weird vision. But it's, at the very least, it's hard to understand exactly what's happening, but at least it shows that God is big enough to come even to be with people in times of exile. This vision, which you might expect perhaps at the beginning of a gospel or at some other place, happens to come to this priest who's in exile. It's a weird vision, and if you try to make too much sense of it, that's not the point. It's like the book of Revelation. You need to kind of just let it go sometimes and not try to interpret every little thing. I think this book has survived because even to someone who would have said, I don't really fully understand this, we see the appearance of the presence of God. To someone who in that moment actually feels very, very distant from God. And in fact, wonders, you know, is God even here? I think it highlights something that God does to us at certain seasons in our lives. Sometimes I think God speaks directly to our hearts to change our mind. Because if you go just from your mind and your logic and and reason and try to live every single moment from that space, there's going to be certain things that I believe God calls us to do that it's going to be really hard for you to do. For example, something like forgiveness. If you feel called to to forgive somebody, but your brain, every time your heart maybe thinks that you should go do that and make that, whatever it is in that relationship to move closer, whatever it is for that moment, your brain's going to be like, nope, deny, deny, deny. Like if it tries to move from, from this space to this space, it's always going to be denied. Sometimes God has to work on our heart to change our mind. Think about something like giving and being generous. And I hope that you feel called to give because you see we're doing good things as a church here. But no matter what it is that you give to, that you feel called to give to, your first impulse is going to be like, I don't know if I'm going to get paid next week, right? It's been nice. I've been at this job for a little while, but I don't know how much longer, whatever it is, this is going to last. And so when you think about, okay, well, I'm called to be generous, I probably should be, and you give some of that away, that's like one of those where your, your head's like, no, like avoid, like stop right here. And I can tell you as somebody who, who gives uh, regularly to different things and also to this church, I will say that's money that I never miss personally. And it's a blessing, I think, to be generous and to give of what we have, but it's something that your head's going to block. And you, your heart needs to be called to it. Sometimes God works around the mind to speak first to our heart, and I think that's what happens in this scene. Ezekiel finds his heart completely broken, wondering if he can take another step, imagining if he has any sort of way forward, and if somehow he got this moment of this, like a scripture or a passage that came to him that said, you know, well, God's omniscient and omnipresent and loving, like that wouldn't be enough, right? 
Sometimes we need to picture the gets into our hearts. And that's what I think Jesus' ministry shows us. Often he teaches using parables, which is like a way around a way. And you tell this story and everybody's like nodding their head. Yeah, if there's a sheep that's gone missing or if there's a coin that's gone missing. Oh yeah, if it's a brother, yeah, I'd probably do that. And then Jesus says, well, hey, you Pharisees, you guys are the older brothers in this story, just FYI. Sometimes we have to go around our heads to our hearts. I believe that is often the movement of God. And for Ezekiel, this happens by a river as he's thinking, this is never really going to get better. This isn't how I would have envisioned it. And in that space, God, I believe, says to Ezekiel, I find you here. Think about moments in your life which you would never choose to go through again. And in fact, you probably wish they never would have happened to you. But it's often those moments where we learn the most about ourselves and the most about God. If we were to have coffee and I was to talk to you about what are the significant things that have happened in your life, the things that have really helped you to think about your faith, oftentimes what we really believe is found when it's shaken a little bit. When we have to get to the core of our being and ask, do I really believe this? And those seasons, again, are hard, and you would not say, oh, I hope to go through one of those again, because you don't want to, and you kind of hope your friends don't have to go through it. But there are things that sometimes we can only learn in exile, when God shows up. And what's fascinating about Ezekiel is he would have argued with you. Before this experience happened to him, before he found himself in Babylon with God showing up, he would have said, no, 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 God shows up in the temple in Jerusalem. God doesn't come to people in exile. God doesn't show up in that profound or that significant of a way. And then he finds himself by the Kebar River and has this unbelievable experience with God. Arguably, one of the most powerful experiences that someone has with God in the scriptures. I mean, at least among those, it's this powerful moment when God shows this vision to him as he finds himself in a place that he would have said is very godless. In a place that seems very distant from the God that he knows. And he has this unbelievable vision, this thing that is going to change him forever. It reminds me of the conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. As they are going back and forth and things get a little bit too personal for her, uh, she tries to change the subject, which is sometimes what religious people can do. Once things get a little bit too personal, it's like, well, let me just talk about like some religious stuff for a while. So she realizes that Jesus obviously is, is from some sort of lineage of prophet and seems to be very impressive. So this conversation continues in John chapter 4, verses 19 through 24, and uh, it goes like this. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it here is the Mount of Gerizim where our ancestors worship? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes to the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way, for God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
So she realizes that Jesus is a prophet. She has this question, okay, where is it that we're supposed to worship? You obviously can tell me a lot about my life. That's awesome. So now tell me where I'm supposed to go to worship. Am I supposed to worship at, at this place or at that place? And that would be awesome if you could tell me that. So then I can just spend the rest of my life doing what you tell me, and then, like, things will be okay. I'll be spared. Life will be all right. So can you tell me, like, do you guys have it right or do we have it right? There's some conflict here. How are we supposed to figure this out? And I think this is what often happens to religious people, and I include myself in this. We start to think, okay, I'm at the right place at the right time, and I do the right thing, so God, you owe me something. I've sat through a lot of boring sermons, so God, you owe me something. Not, not here, but yeah, no. <laughs> hey God, I've been doing like the right stuff and the right things. I think that you owe me something. And I think it happens subtly, but I think it happens to all of us. And then there are moments when the rug gets pulled out from under our faith a bit, when we feel a little bit of what Ezekiel and the people in exile would have felt, and we start to wonder God, where are you? I've been here for you. Sometimes we realize that we can't tame God. If there's one word that I can safely use to describe Ezekiel chapter 1, it's untamed. It's, it's wild. It's out of control. Ezekiel sees this vision, and he realizes that the God that He's worshipped like in this box and in this structure and in this way. Suddenly, God doesn't fit in that anymore. And this is actually good news. Because when we find ourselves in those seasons of exile, when we're wondering if we can take one more step forward, when we're going through some difficulty, when we're experiencing some pain, I think we can get some comfort realizing that God shows up to Ezekiel in Ishtar's house. Where he might have been dragged through what we now see in Berlin, wondering if he would ever experience or encounter God again. And God, right there by the Kebar River, shows him this unbelievable vision. There are going to be seasons in our lives where we wonder, when we question, when we aren't sure. And it's in those moments, I think Ezekiel teaches us, that God's presence is with us. And that doesn't mean that things are going to go easy necessarily, that it's just going to be reversed. You might have to continue to walk with pain. You might continue to wonder, and logically, the thing that happened might not ever make sense. But I believe in those moments God can speak to our heart and lift our spirit. I think of the New Testament as Paul has the thorn in his flesh and he says, you know, God, please remove this. It would be really helpful to my ministry. In fact, I'm not even asking for this selfishly. If you remove this from me, whatever it is, and we can fill in the blank, which I love about it because we don't know what it is that happened to Paul. Three times I pleaded with God to remove this thing because it would make me be so much more effective in ministry. And God's answer is, my grace is sufficient for you, which is a terrible answer. 
basically believe in my presence and my grace as you go through this difficult circumstance that you can't really explain, that you can't figure out, that you in fact wish was gone, and that you think actually if it was removed, you would be more effective in whatever it is that you're trying to do, but my grace is sufficient for you. When you find yourself in Ishtar's house, when you find yourself wondering, when the world seems to be spinning around and it doesn't really make much sense anymore, when you find yourself in pain 700 miles from anything familiar, that you realize that God's presence isn't far from you. Mainly, I think, God communicates in this strange, wild vision Ezekiel, you're going to be okay. Which is a message I think we need to hear from time to time in our lives. When things seem to be turning upside down, and we're tempted to just let anxiety take control, and we're tempted to just wonder, you know, is this ever going to get better? You're going to be okay. And this is one of the great blessings that we have when we get an opportunity to share testimonies and share things about the things that are really going on in our lives. We can gather around people who have had these difficult experiences and maybe the person who is 10 years into this can talk to the person who is experiencing it right now. It's one of the beautiful blessings of community because sometimes God needs to just look us in the eye as we find ourselves in exile and just tell us, you know, you are going to be okay. That doesn't mean the pain is ever going to disappear. In fact, you might walk with that limp, that thorn in your flesh for your entire life. My grace is sufficient for you. Ezekiel, you are still going to be by the Kebar River for a long time. It's going to be a while till the temple is ever rebuilt again. But my grace, my presence is sufficient for you. Whatever it is that you are currently going through right now, and maybe whatever it is that you will someday have to experience and go through, may you see this vision in Ezekiel chapter 1. And you might not ever get a vision quite like that. And if you did, you probably would think it was like the salsa you ate last night or something. Because it's a very strange vision that happens. The message is, Ezekiel, you're going to be okay. I'm still with you in a place that you would never expect, in a place you wouldn't have hoped for, and one that you necessarily wouldn't want to go. Ezekiel, I'm with you. The book of Ezekiel, from the very beginning, why I think it's lasted for 2,500 years, tells us that God meets us even there in foreign lands, in places that we sometimes feel far from God. And that is beautiful, great news. Let's pray. God, may you speak to our hearts. In moments, sometimes, when what you're calling us to doesn't logically make sense, may you speak to our hearts. May you continue to work in us and to call us to be your people. 
we find ourselves from time to time in seasons where we feel distant, where we aren't sure. Father, may we give you the space to meet us there even in those places. Father, the good news is you still reach out to those of us who are in exile now, those of us who will be at some point. Father, lead us and guide us to be your people in all moments and in all places. Father, may we take heart from this vision and realize that deep in our core, no matter what we face, we're okay as long as you're with us. Father, help us find ourselves in a really distant exile right now to hear that call. Be with us as we strive to live that out. Your son's in my prayer. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.